Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics and always from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of our friends at CMF Curo. Learn more at mycatholichealthcare.org. Live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Curo. Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us on a specialty focus episode will be Dr. Bill Perez, an anesthesiologist from Columbus, Ohio. He'll give us a peek behind the curtain, you know, the one that separates anesthesiologists from surgeons, about what they're doing and what's really going on up there. Now, you may remember, if you're a regular listener, that several weeks ago, Dr. Kevin Majors taught us more about how to get to sleep. Well, now on air, someone's going to actually put us to sleep, a true professional. (laughs) Actually, Bill is quite energetic. I think you're going to find him uh, to be wonderful. So, Chris... You do a lot of surgery. (laughs) How important have anesthesiologists been to what you're able to do for patients? Well, surgery without anesthesia is called torture. Yes. Uh, So uh, I couldn't I couldn't do anything without you know well trained and professional anesthesia providers. So I mean you know in a very obvious practical sense they they've been wonderful. You know on the obstetrical side, anesthesiologists certainly play a big part for those women who choose or need an epidural for obstetrical anesthesia, or or maybe they should need a C-section for whatever reason. I mean, it's absolutely critical. Um, and on the surgery side, you know, equally critical, just more commonly uh, critical. But I would say some of the things that where anesthesia has played the biggest part in my professional life has been things I've learned from them. You know, whether it was CRNAs or physician anesthesiologists, I've learned great things about physiology, about medications, about about pain and and pain control that I just don't think I would have picked up from anybody else. I mean, they generally are really a wealth of information and knowledge. Yeah, I always remember it was like you know, extended periods of boredom punctuated by sheer terror in the life of the anesthesiologist. I mean, everything's just, you know, beep, beep, beep. And then all of a sudden, ah, you know, they're they're crashing, the blood pressure is dropping. What do we do? And most of the time, these guys are just so calm in the midst of that terror. It's quite reassuring to have them around. Yeah, I'm sure uh, Bill can talk to it, but or speak to the idea, but you know they are generally at their best when things are at their worst. Uh, and the thing that pops into my head as an analogy would be a, a commercial airline pilot. You know, usually everything goes along just fine, but it's when it doesn't that you need the professional skills. You know, it just occurred to me that we missed a great opportunity for a trivia question when oh, you no. said behind the curtain. We should have asked people what that curtain is called. You know, the Ethernet. Arr, arr, <laughs> not the, arr, not the arr. internet. Uh, I'm but, sorry, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> For my listener, our listeners, I'm sorry. <laughs> but, you know, I remember my older sister, and we should ask Bill about this, talking about the smell uh, of ether. Yes. She had her tonsils out. You know, that's something there's not that many people around. Sorry, sis, you're old. <laughs> not, that many, not that many people around that can say they know the smell of ether. Yes. And I think dentists still occasionally use ether. Uh, yeah. Listeners know it has a very pugnant smell yes. um, that causes horrible nausea in most people. Um, yes. And Chris, you've had some general surgery yourself, haven't you? Oh, I have. I had shoulder surgery, not unlike you, a couple of summers ago. And, you know, I, the thing that I remember about it was how it snuck up on me at the last minute, how very scared I was to have to be put to sleep. I just did not see it coming. Wow. And then, of course, my my uh, my ego got a little bit involved, and I didn't want anybody to know how scared I was, which, <laughs> which made it worse. worse. You know, of course. Uh, but, but it's rather intimidating putting your life quite literally in someone else's hands. I can't wait to hear Bill talk about really the safety uh, of yes. general anesthesia, because I think a lot of us are fundamentally anxious about it when when and if that time comes in life. You know, I remember the last time I had shoulder surgery, I, I for whatever reason, have not been particularly 
you know, scared of it. And, you know, I suffered from, you know, anxiety for, for decades. And yet even in the midst of that, I didn't, I don't know why it just felt so good to go to sleep. Maybe. Yeah. You know, uh, one, one of my sons is kind of an actuary of sorts and loves numbers. And he points out that it's much more likely for you to die on the way to the hospital in your car, then you're going to die from the <laughs> anesthesia. But that's not what that's not what our anxiety tells us for most no. of us uh, no. in those moments right before surgery. So it will be fun to hear Bill talk about that. And then the practice of anesthesia has changed so much, uh, and I know that he's going to talk about uh, physician anesthesiologists and anesthesia aides and CRNAs and a plethora of initials and what all of that means. Uh, and how the practice of anesthesia and the business of surgery, you might say, is changing so dramatically right before our eyes. Yes. Did, did you do a uh, rotation in anesthesiology when you were in med school or residency? I did. And, you know, I don't, I don't know if I've told you this before, but I was one phone call away from changing from OBGYN as a specialty oh my. to anesthesia. Tell I me more. Learned, I fell in love with anesthesia as a fourth-year medical student after I had already said I'm going to the University of Virginia for OBGYN training, but they ran the intensive care unit um, ah. uh, at the University of Florida. And every, every moment of every day was you know, like a physiology lab. And they would say, look, you give this drug and the blood pressure goes up and this drug and the heart rate goes down. And it was so fascinating that I almost changed uh, at the last minute. I wonder what my career would have been like. So uh, what made you decide not to do that? Uh, I I, I don't really remember, to be honest. It has been 150 years. But um, (laughs) I, I think at the end of the day, I realized that I was just enamored with the physiology and the science, but that, you know, my true calling was to OBGYN. But it, yes. it is a fascinating, if you like pharmacology, if you like physiology, it's a fascinating thing to see what the body does in response to certain stimuli and medications. Uh, I agree. No, I, I did a rotation in it to see if I would enjoy it. And I was not particularly good at getting the cannula in the artery or vein the first try or the intubation the first time. And the guy kind of looked at me and said, eh, I don't think so. I said, but I'm really good with my hands because like you, Chris, I play <laughs> piano too. And he's like, not yeah. the same thing. Now you do surgery every day, all day, and you don't use an anesthesiologist, but I happen to know you don't just strap people down and tell them to be still while you cut on them. No, I have nurses hold them down. (laughs) (laughs) How do you make a a patient not feel pain for your surgery? It's local anesthetic, which which is a marvelous thing. In fact, patients are often saying, you already got the cancer off, but I didn't even notice. Yes, that's because the nurse did an outstanding job getting you numb. And I have one question for Bill about those, but they work almost instantaneously to, um, to reduce the pain, to reduce sensation. It's a it's a wonderful thing to be able to operate on patients who are awake because, you know, I've always been a little thick-headed kind of coming out of general anesthesia, and, and you're not with local. Right. Yeah, I remember for my shoulder surgery, the anesthesiologist did what's called a block, uh, and I'm sure we'll ah. talk about that. But my arm didn't – I had no pain. I, I couldn't even feel that it was part of me for the next three days um, <laughs> because because of the block that they put in. Uh, which I think is a relatively modern development in anesthesia to be able to to inject a local anesthetic that lasts a long time so that after a big surgery, especially orthopedic or cardiovascular surgeries, that people really don't talk about pain like they used to when you and I were in medical school. Which is a good thing. Absolutely. But well, speaking, it- speaking of the old days, it's, t- it's time to move on to our trivia question of the day. First in medicine. Take it away. Yep, that's our category, firsts in medicine, and we're going to stay on topic. So what took place for the first time in history in a place called the Ether Dome? Yeah, Chris already prepped you with that word, ether. In the Ether Dome, located at Massachusetts General Hospital on October 16th, 1846, just over 175 years ago. The Ether Dome was a surgical amphitheater used to teach medical students and young physicians. So what happened there on October 16, 1846? You'll find out at the end of the show. But after this break, we'll be back on Dr. Doctor with Dr. Bill Perez in the world of anesthesiology. 
Welcome to our guest interview on this episode of Dr. Doctor. We have Dr. Bill Perez, an anesthesiologist who is now an associate professor of anesthesiology at The Ohio State University. He received his MD from the University of Washington in Seattle and completed a residency at the University of Washington in 1991. At that time, he did subspecialty training in obstetric anesthesiology, uh, dearly beloved by my co-host, Chris. After five years in private practice, he left his practice to get what most anesthesiologists do, a master's degree in theology, which he completed in 1999 at Franciscan University of Steubenville. He returned to practice after that, but then moved his family to Ohio to do a fellowship in cardiothoracic and vascular anesthesiology at Ohio State. He's been on the faculty there ever since, and uh, most of the time is director of perioperative echocardiography. And if you can say that five times fast, we'll give you a free mug. Just kidding. Bill has been a member of the Catholic Medical Association since 2002, involving himself with the medical student boot camp since it began, as well as serving as committee chair for the education committee. He's also served on the National and Columbus CMA boards. He and his bride, Shelly, have four children, ages 10 to 20. Bill, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thanks so much. Hey, hey, Bill, out of all the many things you could have done after knocking yourself out in four years of medical school, you chose to go into anesthesiology. What led to that? Because I wanted to walk to knock others out, Tom. <laughs> oh, very good. And boxing wasn't the way, yeah. even given your manly frame that you have. Actually, I was going to be a family practice doctor. In those days, we had paper applications. There was no internet. And I had a box full of folders to apply to all these different family practice programs. But I did my first rotation as a fourth-year student, two weeks in anesthesiology, you know, to learn how to intubate. And the rest, yes. as they say, is history. I just loved it. And I switched up on the spot and applied to the only two programs in Seattle because I wanted to stay there and fortunately got into one of them. Now, Bill, we've, we, whenever we have a specialty focus like this, I think we end up asking the same question. Were you enamored with the specialty as a student or was there a certain mentor that, that, that caught your attention and you followed them or some combination? You know, it really was the specialty for me. Uh, it was a very short rotation. And although I did like and admire the, the gentleman who was sort of mentoring me, if you will, uh, it was a two-week rotation of which I was sick three days. I mean, I made this career decision based on seven days in a private practice hospital. So, you know, seven times about eight hours, about 56 hours worth of experience. And then it was a full two years because I had my entire fourth year to finish and my entire internship year in internal medicine before I ever started doing any clinical anesthesia and found out if I'd made a huge mistake. Oh, my goodness. But you didn't. You, you even liked it when you started your residency. Yes, I love anesthesiology. I love the subject matter. I don't love everything about the lifestyle or the job, and I think we'll get into that a little later. What, what was attractive about you know the, the science, the physiology of it? It was just the, just the immediacy of it. Uh, if somebody needs something very quickly, say their blood pressure is zero. Uh, <laughs> I, like to, I like to be the guy that knows how to fix that, doesn't hesitate, and does it. And I prefer to do that without anyone even noticing. Ah, Now, did this flow from other aspects of the per your personality in other areas of life where you I, knew that that would fit? Maybe from my competitive sports background, I don't really know. I just, uh, I mean, it's, it's also, sometimes I think, how could anyone be an oncologist, you know, and, and and take care of these sick, horribly sick people in sad situations every day of their lives? And then I think, well, someone needs to take care of them, right? <laughs> and so if you yes. have the kind of gifts that can do that, then you need to answer that call. And I think it was similar uh, for me. Uh, I think I am a quick thinker. I think I am good at uh, staying calm, even when no one else is, and uh, I had a good memory at the time, maybe not so much anymore. <laughs> you know, I remember, Bill, in medical school, there were two groups of, two groups of residents that I looked up to and it, as a specialty. It was anesthesia and urology, and in retrospect... They were just the most fun people of all the people around. Um, all I went to the University of Florida, and all of the anesthesiologists were big into scuba diving, and probably because of the physiology uh, of scuba diving. But I was really attracted to anesthesia and urology. Uh, besides family medicine, were there other specialties in the running for you, or was it love at first sight? 
Well, no, there, there were certainly other specialties for me. And the reason that I was going into family medicine is because like my poor son now who can't choose a major in college, I liked almost everything. Uh, it happened in college. Uh, uh, and I was pretty good at most everything I tried, which didn't help matters. And then in medical school, going through all your rotations, I liked almost all of those too. So I loved OB, but I didn't want to take care of only women. Uh, I loved pediatrics, but I didn't want to take care of only children. Um, I loved some of the medical subspecialties. And so I really didn't know what to do with myself. So I was going to be a family doctor and try to do a little bit of everything. Uh, but then when I did the anesthesiology rotation, not only did I love uh, being able to handle a crisis airway, being able to start lines uh, when time is of the essence, uh, being able to resuscitate in a way that perhaps others could not. I enjoyed all of that. And I realized I would also be able to take care of all sorts of people. Wow. So, Bill, at the beginning of the show, I mentioned that when I did anesthesia, they told me I shouldn't go into it because I, I couldn't intubate on the first try. I couldn't hit a, a vein or artery on the first try. How important is it for someone going in that, that you could do that on that seven-day rotation? I would say not at all. Okay. <laughs> I would say that, uh, that's, I mean, with all respect to whoever told you that, who's probably a fine clinician, I, I, I think perhaps among the worst advice I've ever heard. Uh, it doesn't matter what field you're in. It's the process. Right. It's, it's having the requisite basic skills to do something or basic dexterity or, or intellect or whatever the basic requirements are. And then it's attentiveness to that skill and repeating it properly over and over and over until you're among the best in the world. And, and there's no reason that someone should be told they can't do something because they couldn't do it the first time. In mm. fact, Tom, I'll add that when I get students in my operating room, and they're trying to intubate, this is what I tell them. I don't care if you put the tube in the trachea or not. What I care is that you don't break my patient's teeth. <laughs> Good First point. Alarm. Okay, because if that person can't get the tube in, my resident or my fellow or myself will certainly get the tube in, and we're not going to let the patient be hurt. Right. But if you break the teeth, hmm. I can't fix that. Someone else has to, and it's not a good thing. Now, so, Bill, you mentioned resident, fellow, and some other things. Uh, walk through for our listeners what the the training timeline is like uh, for a physician finishing medical school and decides anesthesia is for me. What happens next? Okay, I'm going to presume for the moment that you're a rare person such as myself that has decided straight out of medical school to be an anesthesiologist. And the reason I say that is so many people in our field either did complete residencies in other specialties or at least a year or two in internal medicine or surgery or something and then switched in. It's, it's a tremendous percentage of, of our specialty. However, uh, in my class, there were 11 residents and two of them, two of them including me, just went to medical school and decided I want to be an anesthesiologist. So once you do that, you do your internship year. Some people do a transitional year rotating through all sorts of different specialties. I was required by the University of Washington to do a full year of internal medicine. So I was just mm -hmm. like their medicine interns. And at the end of that year, they offered me a spot in the medicine program. So I always think I could have been a cardiologist, but I didn't. <laughs> uh, so then you do another three years of training in clinical anesthesiology. And then if you want to, you can continue your training in a fellowship of one or two years generally. Uh, and this is, of course, excluding any research aspirations you might have. So what interested you to do a fellowship first in obstetrics, then in cardiovascular and cardiothoracic? Well, there was a curiosity at the time I was graduating. It was just two years after they made it a four-year instead of three-year residency. So there was a nationwide shortage of fellows. So they offered all of us a combination fourth year of residency with fellowship certification. And so you'd, be a, you'd be a fool not to get it. Yeah. And I chose obstetric anesthesiology for two reasons. Number one, my other love was cardiac. And I absolutely knew I would not get that spot. There were two spots. <laughs> I hadn't done that rotation. And there were some serious stars in the class that were applying. I just knew I wouldn't get it. Number two, I loved obstetrics, and I knew I would get that spot. If I applied, <laughs> it was going to be mine. You know, I'll, I'll bet our listeners, I'll bet our listeners are surprised to learn this this idea that you you mentioned of not getting something. You know, I remember thinking I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon, and then I realized 
the people that were going into orthopedics were so much smarter than I was that this was never going to happen. I was more likely to be an interpretive dancer than I was um, <laughs> an orthopedic surgeon. But, but there's a competitive nature to this thing that I'll bet most listeners really never thought of. And that, you know, you might want to do specialty X, but specialty X may not want you. And so it really is sort of a funny path that all of us take to end up wherever it was that God intended for us to land, isn't it? Well, I'm glad you added the last part, because ultimately, <laughs> if you pray, he'll lead you to where you need to be. But there is this trade-off between the amount of desire you have to do that one thing mm. and the difficulty of doing that one thing. If you had been so dead set on being an orthopedic surgeon that you were willing to reapply, reapply, reapply for three, <laughs> four, or five years, you know, while doing general medicine somewhere, uh, the only place I know you can do that is the military, <laughs> but uh, then perhaps you would eventually got it, or perhaps yeah. you would have been willing to go to a program far, far away. Mm, uh, but ultimately, you chose not to do that, found another love, and and did something else. Now, speaking of persistence, I want to know what the conversation was like between you and your wife when you said, honey, I'm going to forget this medicine thing for a while and go study theology down at Franciscan University. What must that have been like? Well, it's interesting you should ask because there was no conversation because I was single then. Ah, that made the conversation so, go much better. In fact, <laughs> in fact, it was that decision and uh, my time at Steubenville that led to me sort of snagging my child bride. Uh, oh. and, <laughs> however, it's a very good question because uh, in 2006, with a five-year-old and two babies under one-year-old, I did have this conversation about moving across the nation to do a cardiothoracic fellowship in my mid-40s, which is tantamount to insanity. <laughs> and that conversation went very well. Uh -oh. I, I said, what do you think of this idea? And instead of losing her mind, my wife said, that sounds like a good idea to me, at which point I knew there was a divine intervention and I must obey. <laughs> you must. So, so, Bill, one of the things that made it hard for me to consider anesthesiology is that part of me wanted to, to be the guy. And, and you've done a little description of that, you know, in some circumstance. And it seemed like it always depended being with a surgeon, you depended on their schedule for what you would do. How true is that for anesthesiology? Or is there a lot you can do with patients without a surgeon? No, it's very, very true, Tom. And when I went into the field, I knew going in that I would have to be comfortable uh, not getting the glory for what we did together, we being the surgeon and me. Hmm. And I was very comfortable with that. I never needed the glory. What I didn't anticipate and what caused me a great steal, a deal of struggle in my career was it's not just a matter of not getting the glory or the credit. It's a matter of being disrespected as a physician and as a person quite often, as being wow. treated less than on a semi-regular basis, not by all surgeons, please let me make that clear, but mm -hmm. it is definitely a real thing. And it uh, causes one to wrestle with one's pride and pray for humility, and also, it, in essence, to decide which battles you need to fight, because sometimes it's not just your pride on the line, it's the best interest of the patient. And that's mm -hmm. been one of the most difficult aspects of uh, doing this job for my career. Well, it's interesting to hear you say that as the person often on the other side of that relationship uh, doing fertility surgery. And when you were saying that, I was just thinking, Today was a surgery day for me. And, you know, I started my day and it, it occurred to me who I was going to be with from an anesthesia perspective all day. And I immediately knew it was going to be an amazing day because the person that I was with is phenomenal, is professional. Um, it's just, it, it's, it's a partnership. Uh, and I've had days when you have the opposite feeling, but it's really too bad that you as an anesthesiologist experience that because, um, we certainly can't do what we do if you can't do what you do. It's a partnership. It's a uh, universal experience mm -hmm. in my field, and one must be able to deal with it. Uh, but there are ways to manage it. And, and I can tell you that uh, being in the Catholic Medical Association has helped me immensely on a personal basis with that particular battle. Hmm. Interesting. What are some of the things you've learned that have helped you? What are some of the practical things you can use in the moment or in the day? Well, I think 
that realizing that you're performing a service and that it's not about me, if you will, mm. is, is an important thing. Uh, one of the best things I've learned, and it's not as if you didn't know this, but by, by being involved in the CMA, going to the conferences uh, and listening to people talk, I've learned to at least attempt to really focus on that the patient is in persona Christi. Mm. And in fact, even the surgeon, the co-workers, even are, the surgeon are yes. also, are also uh, Christ to me, or yes. at least that should be my goal. Uh, and so I, my goal is to treat them as if they are our Lord uh, in a, in a distressing disguise, if you will. Uh, and also to bring Christ to them. And I am not even pretending for one moment that I'm particularly good at that. <laughs> just having that as a even occasional goal, even remembering it from time to time, is an immense help to me. So, Bill, before we go to our break, I want to ask you one more question. Uh, it's often confusing because there's not only anesthesiologists, but there are certified registered nurse anesthetists, CRNA, and I guess even something called anesthesia aides. What is the difference, the complementarity, or the, the, the battles between these different groups? Well, there's a lot there. Uh, there cer certainly are political battles that go on between the associations, but my personal experience has been nothing but fabulous with CRNAs whenever I have encountered them. University of Washington, in private practice, uh, and now at Ohio State University. The CRNAs that I work with, particularly that I work with regularly on the cardiac side, are so very good, uh, I, I can't even explain how good they are. Uh, but it is different. They are not physicians. They did not go to medical school. Um, they know a lot by experience, and they yes. can do a lot of really great things. Mm -hmm. um, but there are often things that they perhaps wouldn't think of when something unusual comes up because they may not know the medical condition as well. Uh, and so I think there's tremendous value to having a physician anesthesiologist and working together with these fabulous nurse anesthetists. So I, I think the collaborative approach to it is fabulous. Uh, the anesthesia assistants are much more rare, and I honestly don't know exactly what training they have to go through. The CRNAs are far and away more common, uh, but I have found it to be just a really positive experience working with them. That's a good way to end the first half of this interview, but we'll be right back with some more of anesthesiology here on Dr. Doctor. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor with Dr. Bill Perez, an anesthesiologist uh, at Ohio State University. Bill, it's so great to have you with us. You know, you've been doing this uh, a few years, like Tom and I have. How has anesthesiology as a discipline changed uh, over the last many years? I would say in almost every conceivable way, with the possible exception that we still are using gas. We use, uh, there are more than one. We use, uh, most people use uh, one of three very modern descendants of ether. Uh, the oldest, quote, slowest drug that we have now was the new and fast one when I was a resident. Uh, I'm glad it's still in play, as I am. Uh, and, and then we have some sort of super rapid, fast uh, gases and, and part of the job is knowing what are the advantages and, and disadvantages of using each for different cases, different patients, uh, etc. Uh, the intravenous drugs that we use, uh, the imaging has changed tremendously and you would say, well, wait, you're not imaging. And I would say, oh, oh yes, I am. <laughs> uh, because ultrasound, as you probably know, has changed almost every medical specialty and probably none more than anesthesiology. Uh, one of my subspecialty expertises is transesophageal echocardiography. So during a heart surgery or even other surgeries, sometimes I'm placing a probe down the esophagus, which lies directly behind the heart and the ultrasound waves are passing through the heart. And I'm steering this probe and doing complete evaluation of the heart before and after the bypass run. Uh, we have to learn uh, at the same level as cardiologists, how to evaluate different heart structures, valves, how to grade uh, stenosis or regurgitation, how to diagnose what part of the valve is malfunctioning and how perhaps it might best re be repaired. That's our uh, decisions ultimately up to the surgeon. However, we need to give the surgeon all that information and then we evaluate the competency of the repair. 
or whether we need to go back and do it again or replace the belt. So we do all of these things on a regular basis. Uh, there are people, when I was a resident, we were doing peripheral nerve blockade uh, or you know nerve blocks, axillary blocks, uh, stellate blocks, et cetera. They're all done by anatomical knowledge or by paresthesia where the patient would feel the tingling and then we would inject. Now, the great majority of these are done with ultrasound guidance. They see the tip mm. of their needle, they see exactly where they're injecting. They know what the nerves look like and where they are, where not to inject. Uh, and the efficacy has gone through the roof. They're also doing diagnostic ultrasound uh, to look for pulmonary edema, pneumothorax, uh, mm. all sorts of things we do. I am one of the last dinosaurs that doesn't use the ultrasound to place my invasive lines on a routine basis. I use it when I need to. Uh, sure. But the young kids, as I call them, uh, they use the ultrasound every single time and actually have some concerns about that because they, they weren't around. I'm not sure they'd be any better than the bag boy at the grocery store at getting one of these things. <laughs> but, you know, that sort of that sort of speaks to this concept of, of anesthesia safety, you might say, in a general sense. And, and I know Tom and I were talking before you joined us. Uh, when I had shoulder surgery, I got myself really worked up with anxiety about you know, just the fear of the surgery, but help our listeners understand for the average healthy person having a general anesthetic, how safe is it? Well, it's a lot safer than your ride to the hospital, Chris. <laughs> and yeah. I sometimes tell my patients, uh, I'll be your auxiliary guardian angel for a few hours. <laughs> I don't claim to be as good as the original, but I'm not bad to have around while you're having this done. <laughs> Uh, for some of our patients, they're physiologically in better shape under our care than they've been in many, many, many years because our agents lower the vascular resistance, which allows them to get more forward blood flow to their organs than perhaps they've had in a long time. These patients with chronic high blood pressure, with failing hearts, patients uh, who uh, have lung disease and, and aren't saturating with their oxygen levels very well, and, and we sort of tune them up and get them primed for a few hours. Uh, but we do have to wake them up and get them back to functioning on their own. <laughs> That's a beautiful description, Bill. Uh, there's there's some heavy ethical areas that you can actually wade into in anesthesiology. And I think on this show on uh, Catholic relationships with uh, medicine, I'd like to delve into a provocative article that you wrote a few years ago in the Lineker Quarterly, which is the official ethics journal of the Catholic Medical Association. And it was called Anesthetizing the Dead. What was that all about, Bill? Well, Tom, it was actually called The Trouble with Anesthetizing the Dead. Ah. And it was an essay which I was asked to contribute because they had done a special issue all about uh, the concept of brain death or more properly called uh, declaring death by neurologic criteria. And uh, obviously in this interview, we can't go deeply into that subject, but suffice to say that there are very, very faithful believing Catholics who believe that the very concept of brain death is invalid and that these people, although profoundly neurologically injured, are not dead and we shouldn't be taking their unpaired vital organs and putting them into other people. I must also say there are tremendously respected, believing Orthodox Catholic theologians uh, who believe the other way as well. So this is uh, a bit of a debate within, uh, it, it, it's not a heterodox orthodox thing. It's a bit right. of a debate. Uh, and so I was asked to write an essay about my personal experience uh, because the anesthesiologists are asked to anesthetize the organ donors, which are presumably dead or we wouldn't be doing it. And so I wrote about the, uh, the difficulties with that, the uh, incongruity of some of the concepts, uh, how these patients would move, how these patients' blood pressure would go sky high or the heart rates would go up. Uh, and, and I wrote also about how this discomfort with doing this caused me to delve deeply into what the church had taught about this and look at uh, who is informing whom about the medical issues, about the theological issues. Uh, and I came to the conclusion there's an awful lot of confusion and enough to plant doubt in my mind to this concept. And so I basically wrote about that and the struggle about that. Hmm. Are there other ethical challenges you face in anesthesiology? 
Oh, yes, tremendously so. Uh, and uh, as you know, if you try to find a specialty uh, where you can avoid all ethical dilemmas, it will hunt you down. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, there's a reason I'm not doing OB anymore, because it was almost impossible to stay employed as someone who would not cooperate with sterilizations or abortions. Uh, Amen. I, and I did manage to survive that way for a while, and it's a shame because I loved OB, but ultimately I went back to my other love, which was cardiac, uh, but it hunts you down. There, There are no... There is no safe place where you're not going to face these issues, particularly as the issues keep exploding. Now, it's not just sterilization and abortion anymore. It's transgender surgery. Uh, mm. It's 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 all sorts of things, in vitro fertilization. It, it, I mean, uh, and then, of course, in my case, uh, even just organ harvest. Uh, so there are a lot of things. I think the biggest problem for an anesthesiologist is that we are not the one who decides to post the case or not do the case. Uh, and the the most difficult situation is when you're on call. So just from the area of obstetrics, I'll just give you a quick example. A woman is scheduled to come in for a scheduled C-section with tubal ligation or sterilization at the same time. Well, everyone knows that you won't be assigned to that case. Let's say you have a group of partners that agree to that, but you're on call and she comes in in labor. <laughs> now it's an emergent C-section, and they're expecting you to do the anesthetic for the procedure she wants, which is to have her tubes tied, which you cannot morally cooperate in as a Catholic. So cooperation is a major problem. Understanding the different degrees of cooperation, formal cooperation, informal cooperation, direct, immediate, indirect, remote, and, and uh, what factors mitigate against that. Uh, for example, you might do something with remote cooperation if your primary aim is to save the life of the mother, for example. So uh, those things are very, very difficult, and they're compounded for someone who's an anesthesiologist because you don't decide if a case goes or not. So if you're going to refuse to do a case, it's a big deal. Hmm. And I have refused to do cases, but you have to, you can't just do that willy-nilly and expect to keep a job. So it's very, very tough to negotiate. But you obviously have negotiated. What are some of the pearls of wisdom you give to younger people who want to be like you, Bill? Well, you could choose not to be an anesthesiologist so <laughs> that you would have more autonomy over what things you do and don't do. Uh, if you went into the field, uh, I think it depends on your personality, but I would advise uh, making it clear to those around you, that there are certain things that you for, and I don't say for religious, I say for medical, philosophical, and religious reasons, I cannot cooperate or participate in X, Y, and Z, and they need to know that. And if they're not going to go with that, uh, then perhaps I shouldn't take that job. You know, One thing I tell the young people is there are many, 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 many jobs, and you yeah. don't have to take the one that is is on the internet offering the biggest salary because there's a reason those jobs are always out there. You know, students will call me and say, you know, I wanted to be an OBGYN, but I'm an authentic Catholic and I know I just don't want to fight those fights every single day that you fight, like you're describing. And then I'm always groping for the right words, but I usually somehow get back to saying to them, you know, you're exactly the person we need in the specialty. We need somebody like you that really is groping for the right words and struggling and wants to wants to deal with these tough, tough issues. Don't run away from them, you know, run towards them. Um, and I think of that listening to you describe it, you're, you're exactly what we need. Well, I think that uh, for the young ones coming up now, we have this incredible thing called the Catholic Medical Association student section uh, and, and the residents, uh, and they are powerful. They, they put us all in awe and they take care of each other. And so there's help that there wasn't when you and I were coming through. I think probably the great majority of people in, in my generation who have uh, ended up as faithful Catholic physicians had a period where they either weren't faithful or they were ignorant. And I was uh, ignorant to the max. <laughs> Bill, let's go to something more mundane. What is the daily schedule of an anesthesiologist like? It's incredibly variable, Tom. I can tell you my daily schedule in this job, 
but it was very different in the job before that and the job before that. The one thing that tends to be universal is getting up at an ungodly hour in the morning. So my job, <laughs> I, have, the cows. Yes. Yeah, I have to get up at 5 a.m. every day. I have to be at work dressed and ready to go at 6.30 or earlier if it's a big case every day. There is no end time. All you know is what order you'll be released. So some days you'll be the first out, some days you'll be second or third out, some days you'll be the last guy out. Uh, for that reason, you can never tell your wife or kids, no matter how many times they ask over the decades, what time you'll be home. You do not know. <laughs> you can never plan to take a class or to be a, a, at least a head coach in the youth sports. Uh, again, it, it may depend on what job you have, but with a typical job, such as I have now, you just don't have that autonomy. You may know that you're likely to get off early on a day, but maybe somebody was up all night doing a transplant and they're not even in today and now you're going to take their spot. Uh, or maybe your operating room has a policy to run only four operating rooms after three, but a very important surgeon decides to add a case at 4.30 and they want to open another room. And if you say, but we only run so many rooms, that's not what the administration will tell the surgeon. What they'll say is, <laughs> Dr. Perez refuses to stay. Oh, <laughs> my goodness. That is a real thing. And uh, with our current very broken system, the people that do the procedures are the, bring, the people that bring the revenue to the hospitals. So you won't get backing from the hospital administration, and you will not get backing from your own group of anesthesiologists if it's a private practice situation, because they are also dependent on people bringing the business there. Now, Bill, aren't there settings where anesthesiologists are the only doctor treating a patient like pain medicine, for instance? That's probably the only one where they'd be the only doctor. And then even then, there are probably multiple consultants for a particular pain syndrome. But there are pain clinics, absolutely correct. Where, And in fact, sometimes I'll be doing an anesthetic for one of my colleagues, a pain doctor. Uh, so I do the anesthesia while he does the pain procedure. So there are all sorts of pain blocks that they do. They can go into clinics and 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 have either an acute or chronic pain specialist work with them. Uh, and that is probably the only case. The other area where you see anesthesiologists outside the operating room quite a bit is I would say probably from the Midwest over to the East Coast, far more than the West Coast, and I've worked in all these places, uh, is the intensive care unit. If you are in the Midwest or toward the East Coast, you are very likely in the ICU to be cared for by an anesthesiologist. Mm -hmm. West, they were pretty much all pulmonologists in the medical ICUs. Interesting. So, so Bill, we've covered Catholic. What gives you the greatest joy in what you do? My greatest joy comes from the interpersonal side of things, which might make the audience laugh since they're thinking, wait, your patients are all asleep. In fact, <laughs> when I told a whole bunch of people that I had chosen to go into anesthesiology, I actually had people literally angry at me because they said, you have great people skills. You should be a pediatrician or you should be a family practice doctor. You are irresponsible going into anesthesiology where you'll just have asleep patients. And I can tell you now after 30 years plus of doing this that nothing could be further from the truth. I have five to 10 minutes to gain the complete confidence of someone I've never met. And I do that. And I think it's really, really important. And ever since I began looking at it as sort of a ministry, almost like a challenge for myself, to reach the human person there. Uh, if they're stoic, uh, I like to break it down and let the tears flow. I want the real person and I tell them so. Yes, I use sedatives on occasion, but I much more rely on looking people in the eye and attempting to give them authentic Christian love with a glance or with a word or a squeeze of the hand uh, and then go from there. So my other great satisfaction comes when I get a patient who says, I've been nauseated and thrown up after every anesthetic for years. Hmm. And then I design an anesthetic and afterwards they have no nausea at all. Oh. Or I have uh, a patient who's having a major surgery that we know is among the more painful things known to man. And I design an analgesic plan and implement it. And they're literally pain-free when we're done with the surgery. Those are, or probably some months, I'll even average one per week of a life I actually really saved. <laughs> And so saving someone's life in a very literal sense is a not uncommon experience for us in our job. Um, I have had 
family members, daughters of people come up with tears in their eyes when I came to see the patient later, thanking me for saving the life of their father. Uh, that isn't common because usually nobody has any idea who we were, but it does occasionally happen and it's extraordinarily rewarding. Well, I mean, Bill, what would you what would you say to our listeners that that you feel are some of the greatest misconceptions about anesthesia or anesthesiologist and, and its practice? I would say many people don't even know that we're doctors. <laughs> uh, I would say patients, families, surgeons, other medical specialists secretly believe that we're magicians. <laughs> we are not magicians. They're afraid to sedate particular people because maybe the gentleman weighs 500 pounds and has mm. sleep apnea and has asthma and has a heart that only squeezes at 10%. And they think if they give them even any sedation, they're going to kill the patient. So mm. therefore, they'll have us do that very same thing and smile about it. And we take on that challenge but it's not magic. I'm not spraying pixie dust on the patient and then they're magically asleep and then they're magically awake. What we're doing is giving drugs, very potent drugs, often intentional overdoses of drugs. They're overdoses just by any other physician in any other circumstance. And we do these things on purpose in a safe manner. So I would say we're not magicians. We are people who understand what these drugs do and we understand physiology and we resuscitate people so very frequently that we've become extremely good at it. And I don't say that uh, with reference to myself, as we are all standing on the shoulders of giants, not just the anesthesiologists and the nurse anesthetists over the last hundred years, but how about the patients, many of whom gave their lives for us to figure out that we need to control people's airways when we mm -hmm. anesthetize them, or we need to monitor their blood pressure. These things were not known, or we needed to invent something called the pulse oximeter, which would show us that there's enough oxygen in the patient's blood at all times. These things were not around. So I think that we are standing on the shoulders of giants in so many ways, and what is an extremely difficult thing to do has become routine. Bill, that is a great way to end this fascinating interview. I learned a lot. I think our listeners did. Thanks for being with us on Dr. Doctor. Thank you very much. And welcome back to Dr. Doctor, and it's time for a welcomed answer to this week's trivia question. And, and it's a great one. So to review, what took place for the first time in history in what's called the Ether Dome at Mass General Hospital 175 years ago, 1846. Now, the Ether Dome was a surgical amphitheater, so to speak, used to teach medical students and young physicians all about surgery. It was the first public demonstration of pain-free surgery. I mean, can you imagine that? Before that date, oh. every surgical procedure was, as you described it, tortuous. Uh, in fact, there was jaw surgery done by a dentist while uh, Dr. William Morton administered ether to a patient named Edward G. Abbott. And the surgeon was John Warren. And you can still visit this place at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. So that's why we talked about ether. Ether's been around that long. And mm -hmm. thanks be to God, I couldn't imagine operating on somebody who wasn't numb. Well, some of, our, some of our listeners will be completely shocked to realize that YouTube hasn't been around forever. Um, but this <laughs> idea that people would you know, come from far and near to have the chance just to observe. And it's not like they had a front row seat. You know, these, you can see the pictures of these amphitheaters. They were a long way away from the patient and seeing any kind of microscopic detail would have been impossible, but yet people were desperate to learn and to know and to understand what was happening in surgery. And I remember when I was at the University of Virginia in my residency, there were some older attendings that still referred to the operating room as the surgical theater. Yes. Uh, because it was the place where greatness uh, took place and people came to watch. Well, speaking of greatness, what are the three greatest things we can take away from today's episode, Chris? Ah, maybe not in the order of importance. Um, but the top three, I think one of them has to be I love this this concept that Bill promoted, and that is that humility is so important. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, what a great life lesson outside of medicine or, or anything professional, but it's needed and it's needed by everyone. And I love the way that he said, uh, I try to remind myself that I, I should see Christ in everyone. 
Um, and then, of course, we know it's in the difficult patients. It's in the, the angry, the upset patients where it's hardest, but probably most important. Um, another one that comes to mind is, you know, I love the way that he said the anesthesia portion of your surgery was safer than driving to the hospital for it. Just like you said at the beginning of the show. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to keep using that with my, my patients and tell them that now I have it on good authority. It's actually true. <laughs> and then the third takeaway is I, I, I'm now convinced that I did the right thing in not choosing anesthesia as a specialty uh, because after listening to Bill, I realized I'm not nearly smart enough for that specialty. Um, <laughs> he, he's much more of a brainiac than I could hope to be. It's good that I went into just staying up all night and delivering babies. <laughs> Neither of your lifestyles sound that attractive, but I'm so glad you guys do it. Says, the, der says the dermatologist. Yep. Amen. Amen. <laughs> It allows me to do what I do. Thank you, listeners, for being with us for yet another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. Thank you, indeed. And remember, you can find this and all of our episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. And if you want to dive a little deeper into some of the topics, just click latest at the top of the main page. You can find out more about our guests, some of their publications, and the like. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And this is Dr. Chris Stroud. We're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Tune in for new episodes every Friday and find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.